Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Dirty Drinks today. How are you, Rick? I'm doing great, Sarah. As you know, I love special episodes. This one is going to be super exciting. I am very excited. We have a whole crew on with us today. So I am going to hand it over to Rick as he is going to be our moderator for the episode. Yeah, so we're going to do things a little differently this time. We have um, a couple of panels uh, that we're going to work through. We have a couple of our infection preventionists from um, ICAP that are going to be asking questions of a team of medical experts about COVID vaccines. Um, I think for starters here, um, I'll let them introduce themselves. You already know Sarah, um, our wonderful co-host who's been on every episode with us of of, uh, Dirty Drinks and is our wonderful editor and everything that we do with this thing. I, I, as I said before, all I have to do is show up and talk. She makes it so easy for me that even I can't screw this much up. And then Kate Tyner is uh, an infection preventionist who was one on one of our earlier episodes. And we're greatly pleased to have her back on uh, asking questions of our medical experts today. And in fact, I'll turn it over to Kate now so she can tell you a little bit about why it's important that we're doing this, as well as introduce our medical experts. So thanks, Dr. Starlin and Sarah for having us on. And I'll start with a story. So um, I've been working um, with long-term care facilities who are experiencing COVID outbreaks since March 2020. So it's been a very long time um, that we've been working on this. And um, day after day, night after night, uh, outbreak, deaths, you know, pretty sad cases. And um, despite all that, we're having a hard time ramping up vaccination among healthcare workers in long-term care, um, which is really frustrating. But when we really delve into that, what we find is that some of these people are still really, really fearful of the vaccines. And so we really wanna approach um, vaccination from the perspective of those people who, um, you know, if you consider people in rural facilities or smaller facilities that don't have regular contact with um, scientific experts. Um, and don't see um, positive um, experiences with that. Rather, they have people whispering in their ear, you know, making them panic um, without good cause. And so I thought to myself, a family member actually kind of posed this question to me, you know, with doubts about um, Dr. Fauci, of all people. And I think the listeners on this podcast will really, we're all um, team Fauci. Um, But to, to my sister's point, I think is, you know, she doesn't know this person. Um, He looks a little different than Midwesterners. He talks a little different than Midwesterners. And when she posed that to me, I said, honestly, like I wasn't taking my direction from that guy. I get to work with like the dream team of infectious diseases specialists. And so like, that's what I tried to relate to her is like, locally, I know these people very well. Like I have worked with Dr. Rupp, for example, for more than 15 years. I have seen Dr. Rupp go to bat for patients who needed help and be a very good doctor. And so I wanted to kind of ask this, literally this dream team of people who understand vaccines and treatment and really break down some of those very scary things that people are hearing about in the channels that are just frankly not true. 
Yeah, so uh, thanks, Kate, for the introduction. So I, um, let's go ahead and see who our panelists are today. I'll, I'll start with Dr. Rupp. Yeah, hi, uh, Rick. Um, really pleased to be on the program today. So um, I'm Mark Rupp. I'm an infectious disease physician, as uh, Kate already related. And uh, I have the privilege of uh, working here at Nebraska Medical Center uh, as the medical director of uh, infection control. So, um, you know, I'm an active uh, teacher, researcher, and clinician, and i um, really pleased to be on the program today. Thank you, Dr. Rupp. I'll just go around how it is on my screen. Dr. Van Schooneveld is next. I'm Trevor Van Schooneveld. I'm an adult infectious disease doc here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I'm the medical director for our antimicrobial stewardship program, which is focused on helping people use antibiotics more wisely. I also work in infection control like Dr. Rupp does and uh, do SM education and things like that as well. Thank you, Dr. Van Scudeveld. And then uh, last and definitely not least is Dr. Cockhut, who's already been on our podcast in the past with a great episode, and she even had a drop in with one of our others. So I think everybody remembers that uh, episode as well. So Dr. Cockhut. Thank you. It's great to be back. And with that, I will not belabor who I am, but I am one of the infectious disease and critical care physicians here. Um, and I am also an associate director for infection control and the medical director for medical quality for Nebraska medicine. So thanks. It's great to be back. Happy to have you all. Thanks, Dr. Cockhut and Dr. Van and Dr. Rupp. Um, I'm going to turn over to Dr. Rupp for a couple of comments just about why talking about vaccine and busting the myths that are out there is important and why where these might have come from, how in this pandemic, which has constantly shifted, there have been opportunities for myths and disinformation and these myths to come about uh, be, just because of we're learning as we go, essentially. And so I'll turn it over to Dr. Rupp. Yeah, Rick, I think that that last part of learning as we go uh, is really the key for why um, you know, misinformation and disinformation has seemingly uh, grown so much here uh, during the course of the pandemic. And I think that, um, you know, because of the pandemic, because obviously this is something that we didn't know about two years ago, that the ambiguity is just inherent in, in the beast. And so as we learned more, um, you know, we've become more and more confident about uh, what we know and what we don't know. Uh, but for the public, you know, they're used to thinking that their doctors and their scientists um, you know, know things and that, you know, everything is zeros and ones, black and white, yes and no. And that's just not the way it is. And so for those of us in the medical field, you know, we're always used to dealing with ambiguity. Um, you know, we have something that is observed or a new medicine that comes out or what have you. And uh, we understand that, um, you know, this doesn't work in everybody in every situation. And I think that the public has had a difficult time dealing with that. They're sort of getting to watch the sausage being made. And so they um, you know, are seeing science as sort of a self-correcting field, sometimes for the first time. And so you know, a great example of that is uh, you know, the issue with masks, for instance. You know, the story has shifted as evidence has been accrued and that we have a better understanding of things. In, ad in addition, there's a lot of subtlety to some of these things. A lot of these are nuanced answers. So, you know, somebody wants to know, um, does a mask work or doesn't it? And it's like, well, yeah, it works, but it kind of depends upon a whole bunch of different things. You know, um, what's it made of? How well does it fit to your face? What sort of situation are you in 
when you're being exposed to COVID-19? You know, is this a high risk exposure with somebody that is, uh, you know, disseminating a lot of virus? Or is this a brief trip to the grocery store? You know, so there's like a huge amount of variables that go in to a lot of the, the guidance that we try to get the public to understand. And so I think it's critically important that we're having this conversation today around some of the misunderstandings, the myths, if you will, around vaccination. And the whole reason for this is that we want people to be well-informed so that they make a good decision based upon real data, real evidence, and will you know, uh, protect themselves and their family and the community. Thanks, Dr. Rupp, I couldn't agree more. Um, as far as uh, ways to improve the situation, obviously we've been touting vaccines as key to our response here. I don't know if uh, Dr. Van or Dr. Cockett, you have any comments on the importance of vaccination in terms of people wanna get back to something that resembles what normal used to be. Um, it may not be look quite the same or whatever going forward, but what's the best option for getting back to those kinds of situations? Yeah, I'd be happy to answer that one. I think um, vaccines are really the way we're going to have to go. Um, I mean, people may love wearing masks and staying at home, but if we want to stop doing that, I think vaccination is the only, the only strategy we have that's going to be successful. So I don't see other strategies that are going to be as fruitful. Uh, I think that's just where we have to go. If we want to keep people out of the hospital, out of the graveyard, uh, and keep people well, vaccines are the way we're going we're gonna to do that. Thanks, Dr. Van Schooneveld. And Dr. Kaka, what would you say about the effectiveness that we've learned of these COVID vaccines uh, since they've been uh, you know, studied and, and released for use? Uh, uh, you know, some of the people might be worried about, well, the flu vaccines, you know, they say they're 20% effective and I got the flu shot and I got the, I got the flu every year. What, what do we know about uh, the COVID vaccines as far as their protection goes? That's a great question. And it is something else that's been a learn as we go a little bit as we've seen Delta rise in this pandemic. And we've seen from the onset that the vaccines are extremely effective at doing one critically important thing, which is keeping people out of hospitals, keeping people out of intensive care units and keeping people alive. They've never been a foolproof guarantee that people could not develop an active COVID-19 infection. And we've seen more of those more mild, if you will, infections or asymptomatic infections with the Delta variant. That means that even vaccinated people could have symptoms. They could spread the infection to others. But the more people that are vaccinated, the shorter the time frame is that you're likely to spread that infection to someone else the less likely you are to get a significant infection. And again, it protects you from the severe illness and the ICU level stays and deaths that I have seen firsthand in the intensive care unit. Thank you, Dr. Cockett. And thanks to everybody on the panel for kind of introducing what the, the importance of talking about vaccines is and, uh, and that they work and that they're important for getting us out of this pandemic. The first thing I would ask is, for those of you who have really been working long hours, long days promoting vaccination, um, do you, uh, does that make you get paid more? Are you paid by Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson and Johnson for promoting the vaccines? I, I don't think any of you are accepting any, any money to get to, to promote these. It's just for common goodwill and health, correct? 
Yeah, that's correct, uh, Rick. Um, you know, all of us are on a salary here and, um, you know, we're not going to get any extra uh, bonus money for being out and promoting vaccines or any other therapeutics or, um, you know, any other type of uh, preventative uh, advice. So, um, you know, uh, we really just don't have those uh, uh, financial conflicts of interest around any of these issues. Agree. And I think that's the same for Dr. Van Schooneveld and Dr. Cockut from the nodding heads as well on screen. So um, I will let Sarah ask a question now. Uh, she has a question for our panelists. Go ahead, Sarah. I do. So I just want to kind of expand on the fact that you guys aren't getting any financial com compensation for this. But I also want to hear what your personal experience has been through the pandemic at work. Are you are you working extra hours? What are you seeing on the floor? Like, why are you so passionate about promoting the vaccine? And, you know, what sort of changes can that bring about if we get more people vaccinated? Yeah, so Sarah, maybe that is the uh, actual personal incentive that we have uh, for this, because if we could get this pandemic a little bit better under control, um, you know, our lives would all be better. Uh, right now, all of us have been working, uh, you know, really um, you know, more than we should be, quite frankly, uh, for about the last two years. And I think a lot of people on the call, um, you know, understand that healthcare workers are really under stress. Hospitals are really under stress. Uh, you know, our nurses and first line workers uh, are at wit's end around this. And so, you know, maybe if there's any incentive that we have for uh, promoting vaccination, it's to get this pandemic behind us so that the life will go back to somewhat uh, a little bit more livable for us. Dr. Van, Dr. Cockcut, anything to add? I would love to hear from Dr. Cockcut about her experience in the ICU. Yeah, I think that she does have a different perspective since, uh, as you all may remember, she's not only just an ID doctor, but she's also one of our critical care specialists as well. So she has a little different perspective uh, from that aspect. So I'd love to hear her input as well. Sure. Yeah, it is a bit of a different perspective um, standing in the ICU rooms and standing in ICUs full of COVID patients. And especially when you think about the ICU, our goal at the end of the day is to save lives and to make sure people return to a state of health where they have a quality of life that we all aim for. COVID-19 made that extremely difficult. We saw more deaths firsthand and they're not quick deaths in an ICU. They are prolonged suffering. It is extremely difficult to live with respiratory failure as a patient. It's extremely difficult to treat respiratory failure when there's not necessarily a fix to get someone better other than support and time. And when we think about the trauma that our nursing staff has felt and our physicians have felt and our respiratory therapists have felt and the people who have left medicine because the trauma is so high, working on vaccine acceptance and encouraging people and providing education and insight into that becomes a critical piece for me because it is what saves lives, but it's also what saves the hospital staff to be there for the next non-COVID patient. We need to have people there and for the good of everyone, we need vaccines. And at the end of the day, we all become a patient eventually, and we want to have the hospital systems there available for us. And without this, that is a consistent threat. Thanks, Dr. Cockett. Um, appreciate the answers from all of you there. Kate, um, do you have another question for our panels? 
Yeah. Um, one of the, th- one of the many things that I admire about this dream team of panelists is your history of um, reviewing lots of different studies and therapies and things like that. And so, for example, when recommendations come from CDC, um, what I see of you guys is you don't, you CDC, we know that's peer reviewed. It comes through committees and things like that. But then there's these kind of other therapies that have been hard to understand. And I think a good example of that was like the convalescent plasma and um, the hydroxychloroquine and whatnot at the beginning of the pandemic. So when therapies like that came out at the beginning of the pandemic, as clinicians, what were you doing to review those types of therapies? And then I think we can kind of match that against how you look at vaccines. Yeah, I think that gets into the question of the very same technology that lets us all meet and talk today led to the rapid dissemination of uh, information that maybe wasn't well thought out or thought through and obviously caught the mainstream because everybody was scared. They were looking for things to do. Um, So how do we sort through what's real and what's not real when it's out there? It looks like it's published public can't tell if it's peer-reviewed and acceptable or not. Uh, So how do you know what's right? Um, I'll let Dr. Van start with that one, if he he doesn't mind. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. We spent the last uh, 18 months continually updating a guidance document on the treatment of uh, COVID-19 that has uh, gone through many different permutations. And I think you bring up some of the really important issues there of how do you sort through what is good science, what is published information, but not peer-reviewed, and what is just uh, something that I'm reading on CNN. Uh, And so what I I think has really helped us is first we have experts in the science of treating infectious disease, and particularly in in treating viral infections. And so it was really, I never understood why people would think an antibiotic like azithromycin would treat a virus. To me, that made zero sense. We've never treated viruses with antibiotics. One thing we know is if we give antibiotics to people with viruses, they actually do worse than if we don't give them anything. And so uh, it's really just, uh, first, you have to use common sense. And then second, you do have to look at the literature and put it into context of what's been published, what's available, what's reputable literature, what's hearsay. And then it's good to sit down with people who are experts in the field and come to a consensus. The other thing we've done is change somewhat what we've done. Uh, Things that we used to recommend, we don't recommend. Things that we uh, recommended, we don't anymore. And so we, as the science has improved, as people have studied this very carefully, uh, have done the randomized trials. And I think that's the best thing. I mean, we all jumped on board Uh, with enthusiasm for some of these things based just on studies done in the lab. But as an infectious disease experts, we know that, you know, 90% of what works in the lab won't ever make it through a clinical trial. And so uh, it's uh, important to be conservative um, in implementing things and not jump on board. And so having the input of other experts, carefully reviewing that literature, Um, making sure that what we recommend we really think is going to benefit patients uh, and not harm them uh, are really things that we had to do. And I think uh, Dr. Cockett, I think, has a a story to share about that that I'd love to hear. So I just want to pause and thank you um, and share this quick story as you think about what we did early on. So our first COVID-19 patient that arrived here was critically ill. And when I roamed in the ICU, 
we may have anywhere from 10 to 25 patients on a given day that we're seeing. We had a single patient. We had anywhere from five to 15 multidisciplinary critical care medicine, pulmonary medicine, critical care anesthesia, infectious diseases, physicians on a single call, usually for anywhere from one to three hours to decide what we thought was best because there was no evidence and we didn't know when we were getting very quick reports out of China on how they were managing patients. And so I think that really set the tone for how we continued to carry forward, which was really no one making decisions in isolation, but really trying to review all of the information we could have discussions that were multidisciplinary and really try to understand what we thought was the best evidence and the best possible care for these patients. And we got better and we got faster, but that sentiment and that process, I think really has carried us through this pandemic and is still something that we're doing today in many different aspects of how we make decisions on how to care for these patients. Thanks, Dr. Cockut and Dr. Van. So taking this back to vaccines, so if we're looking and trying to do things evidence-based, how well was the evidence looked at and studied for the vaccines? Uh, you know, it, the feeling is, is that we went from no virus and then no vaccines, and then in a year we're given the vaccines to everybody. And there are, many of them are approved on an emergency basis, which sounds to me like, hey, maybe they're not that well studied because it's just emergency use because they think it's, you know, it might help. Um, how can we dispel those myths? I'll let Dr. Rupp take that one. Yeah, Rick, thanks. So, um, you know, clearly the development uh, and introduction of the uh, uh, COVID-19 vaccines is a real triumph and it shows what can, be what can be done when there's a unity of purpose and that there are resources uh, and a real collaboration between uh, government and industry and public health. Um, you know, it really is pretty remarkable. And I think that it's uh, amazing that uh, this has come along and is, is as successful as, uh, as it has been. Um, and clearly, you know, most vaccines that get developed and introduced to market take years. And so the public is absolutely correct that, you know, this happened really quickly. Uh, but I would reassure folks that the really careful studies that are required to look at large groups of patients and really look at the efficacy and the safety, um, the corners were not cut. They were just uh, accelerated. And so when these vaccines came out, um, it's absolutely true that, you know, we didn't have five years of experience with them because we don't have five years to wait. Um, you know, and I think that people have to understand that, that, uh, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic. It is an emergency. We do need to bring things forward quickly. But that doesn't mean that uh, they weren't looked at extremely carefully and that, um, you know, we were, we were confident in the safety of the vaccines as they were brought out uh, with the authorization. And now folks should realize that they're fully licensed. These are not experimental vaccines. They are, are fully, uh, completely uh, approved by the FDA. And at this point in time, when we have given literally hundreds upon hundreds of millions of doses of the COVID vaccines to people in the United States, we have a really, really good idea of what the side effect and toxicity profile look like. Um, now, again, these vaccines have not been followed for years because they just haven't been in existence for that long. But people need to be really reassured that they are both very effective that they are very safe, 
and that in no instances in the past do we have examples where a um, side effect only becomes or an adverse event only becomes evident years after a vaccine is given. I mean, in all the vaccines that are out there on the market, that's just not been the case. And so people should feel very comfortable that, you know, within a few weeks or a month or two of getting a vaccine, if you're going to have something happen, it will have happened and we will have seen it. And so with the reporting systems and the surveillance that's been done, uh, we're very confident now that the, the safety of these vaccines is assured. Uh, we're still, again, learning how to use them best. You know, I don't know if giving uh, one dose of vaccine followed three weeks later is the best way of giving these vaccines. We're going to figure that out as we go on. Um, we still don't exactly know when we're going to be needing to give boosters in all sorts of different persons. Uh, but people need to understand that the vaccines are remarkably effective and they are very, very safe. But having said that, they are some rare side effects and toxicity and some serious adverse events that occur, but they are far, far, far uh, less likely and insignificant compared to the risk that people take if they don't get vaccinated and they get COVID-19. And with the Delta variant out there, if you're not vaccinated, unless you're living in a cave someplace all by yourself, uh, this virus is going to find you you know, eventually it's going to find you. And, you know, the chances of having a severe disease, um, you know, being in the hospital, dying from this, or having the long COVID syndrome far outweighs the risk that you would take from getting the vaccine. So if there's anybody out there who's still sitting on the fence, um, there is no better time to change your mind than right now. Get the vaccine, get yourself protected, get your family protected, and do what's right for the community and the country to get this pandemic behind us. Thanks, Dr. Rupp. Um, I believe Sarah has a question for the panel. Yeah, and this kind of plays off Dr. Rupp's last response. Um, I know there is a lot of myths and disinformation out there about side effects, right? We hear all these horrible stories that people are reporting terrible side effects that are happening. Um, can you guys speak a little bit to the, the reporting systems that we do have and how that plays into some of the myths and disinformation. I'm thinking specifically of the VAERS system. Yeah, who wants to take that one, anybody? Uh, Dr. Cockhut? Sure, I'm happy to take that one. So I think specifically when you think about VAERS, what we need to remember is that that system is an open access system in which anybody who has any kind of symptom or adverse event or medical condition who has had this anytime after they've received their vaccine, essentially, can go in and report and say, I might have had an adverse event or a side effect from the vaccine. Now, taking this to an extreme, I could fall and break my leg leaving my house and I could report my broken leg to VAERS. VAERS does not, when it reports these numbers out, mean that any of those numbers are directly attributable to the vaccine. That data has to be pulled out and reviewed privately by the CDC, scoured through to see if there are trends with similar things that are happening that rise to suggest there is a true adverse event that's happening at a greater rate than what happens in the general population. And I think that really feeds into these myths that there's all these side effects because people look at VAERS and you can download some of the data and see how many things have been reported. But we don't recognize the fact that they're not necessarily 
accurately attributable to the vaccine. They may not be reported by a medical professional. And so we can't really discern that data in the same way that the public would love us to be able to, and in the same way it is being used in many of these scenarios where there is dis and misinformation out there regarding that. Thanks, Dr. Cockett. Dr. Rupp, I think, had some comment on uh, the vaccine adverse event reporting system as well. Yeah, thanks, Rick. So um, I actually gave an update uh, to some of the staffers for the Nebraska legislature earlier in the week, and I, I ran a VAERS report as part of this. So anybody can go into the VAERS system and look up what the results are. But what I want to let everybody know is that, as Dr. Cockett related, you know, this is a, a voluntary passive reporting system. So anybody can go in and put, um, you know, whatever they want into the, the, the system. So this was established in 1990 as a way of getting an early warning signal towards potential adverse events related to vaccines. And it served us very well. Um, but people have to understand, again, it's a passive reporting system. It's not designed to determine if a vaccine caused a health problem. And within the explanatory material on the, on the VAERS site that you have to go in and acknowledge, um, it says that reports may include incomplete, inaccurate, coincidental, and unverified information, and that the number of reports alone cannot be interpreted or used to reach conclusions about the existence, severity, frequency, or rates of problems associated with vaccines. So we've given 442 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine in the United States as of November 16th, when I ran this report. And uh, it, it's been given in 227 million persons. So that in and of itself should reassure people that our hospitals are right now full of people who are dying of COVID, not in the hospital because they've got adverse events to COVID-19 vaccine, okay? And then um, there have been 643,957 adverse events reported uh, associated with the vaccine. Again, associated, not meaning that they were caused by the vaccine. And so a lot of the stuff that we know can be related to the vaccine has been reported. So people getting sore arms and feeling muscle aches and fevers and um, you know, all those things that we associate with the reactogenicity of the vaccine that you know, telling us that there's an inflammatory and immunologic response. There have been 600 or 6,775 deaths in people who've been reported after the vaccine. Now, please understand that in 2019, prior to you know, there being COVID anywhere, there were 2.8 million deaths in the United States in, in a year. Uh, that's equal to 7,821 deaths per day. Okay, so when you get a vaccine, all those things that continue to kill Americans continue to occur. You, know, you still have people getting heart attacks and strokes and automobile wrecks and all the other stuff. So there is no big signal that, that this vaccine is causing um, deaths and real problems. And then there's a lot of other things that are reported in there. And I just grabbed a couple of them just so that folks would understand that you can go in and put anything into this reporting system. So there's one case each of poor milk ejection reflex, complete decongestive therapy, endocrine system examination, dental implant removal, stiff skin syndrome, anal erythema, foreign body in the skin, finger licking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it goes on for thousands and thousands of these reports. And so this is exactly what you get out of this system is that, you know, we want people to put everything in there so that if we see a pattern, we can go and investigate it. And that's how we found some of these things 
that are serious and people need to understand that. So, you know, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine does in rare circumstances cause clotting problems. The mRNA vaccines in rare circumstances causes carditis. So these are our real risks and things that people need to understand. But again, when you look at the real risk of serious disease, hospitalization, death, long COVID that's associated with natural disease compared to the rare adverse events associated with the vaccine, the vaccine is really in your favor. Get the vaccine. Thanks, Dr. Cockhut and Dr. Rupp. And uh, finger licking, I think that goes along with one of our popular chicken restaurants around. <laughs> but uh, they got the vaccine right as they uh, went in and uh, ordered the chicken. <laughs> oh, Kate, I think you might have another question for I our do. panelists. Yeah. I think Dr. Rupp set that up really well to talk about <laughs> two of the biggest questions we get, clots and carditis. So I want to start with clots. Um, you know, I think when we think about frontline healthcare workers, especially in long-term care, a lot of women of childbearing age. Um, and th those of us who have used hormonal birth control in the last 20 years, this is something that's painted up and down is you've really got to be careful um, of blood clots. So we're all like worrying about blood clots. And so some of the questions I've received are from, you know, people who um, are terrified, you know, the public and, you know, some of your frontline healthcare workers, especially, um, medication administrators, um, people who um, are maybe dietary in long-term care. Uh, a blood clot is a very scary thing to consider. The only thing we're thinking of are things like strokes and heart attacks. So can we break down blood clots a little bit? Um, so you presented that really clearly, Dr. Rupp. There was one out of the three vaccines that we're currently using where there were some associations with blood clots. Can you break that down for us a little more? Yeah, so um, this has been noted uh, both here as well uh, in the United States, as well as in the European Union and other places where they're using what's known as an adenovirus vectored vaccine. So this is a type of uh, vaccine that uses a virus to deliver the, um, you know, the, the spike protein to folks so that they will then have an immunologic response, make antibodies directed at the spike protein. So, you know, again, here in the, in the US with the J&J &J vaccine, uh, more in Europe with the AstraZeneca vaccine, folks have noted this rare complication. And we're talking about, you know, a handful of cases per millions of doses um, where folks will get um, serious clotting disorders. And so I don't wanna minimize that. And as you noted, they are most prominently in uh, young women, uh, oftentimes of childbearing age. And so if you were in that risk group and you were already taking, for instance, uh, you know, uh, hormonal birth control pills and you didn't want to have an additional risk factor for thrombosis, you might decide that, hey, maybe the mRNA vaccine makes more sense for me. Um, likewise, for the mRNA vaccines, they are a rare cause of carditis. And this is seen um, most frequently in uh, young men. And so if you were a young man, you might decide that, you know, hey, I want to shy away from that form of the vaccine. It's also most often seen after the second dose instead of the first dose. Um, there are some data now about mixing and matching, um, you know, uh, modalities or strategies towards getting vaccinated. And so, you know, again, there's lots of ways for people to look at this, decide what makes the most sense for them. But quite clearly, for any of these vaccines, the uh, risk from natural disease far, far, far outweighs the risk that you're going to have uh, from the vaccine itself for any of those, you know, adverse events that I, that I related.
But again, you can talk to your physician and you can decide what strategy makes the most sense for you. But, um, you know, I would, again, really urge people that their risk of serious problems from COVID-19 are way, 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 way more than it is with a vaccine with any of those things that we've talked about. And getting the vaccine, if you're playing the odds, is your best decision. Yeah, great example of complete transparency with what we're seeing and adjusting our recommendations as more data and information is known. So thank you, Dr. Rupp. Yeah, Sarah, was, do you have... Go you ahead. Know, Rick, I'll just point out one more thing and I'll be real brief because I know I dribble on too long. But, you know, the, the, um, the way that the federal agencies attack these things, I think should be reassuring to the public that when these reports came out, you know, they put a hold on additional vaccination until they could really look at the data, figure out what the association was, figure out what the risk was, and then decide whether it made sense to go forward. I mean, folks are being really careful about this. Agree. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, go ahead and ask a question. Uh, yeah. So I know we've talked a lot about, you know, our own personal risk versus benefit and thinking that through on a personal level, but would you guys speak a little bit to a community benefit for the vaccination? Um, you know, there are a lot of people out there that may be immunocompromised or have a severe allergy to the vaccine that simply cannot take it. So what does me taking the vaccine do for those people? Yeah, I'd be happy to answer this one. This is one I've talked uh, with a lot of people about because uh, particularly younger people I've heard say, well, I'm young. I probably won't get that sick. I probably won't die. So I'm not going to take the vaccine because for me, I think I'm healthy enough and it's not a big deal. Uh, one thing is I've seen young people get really sick from this. Uh, and so just because you're young doesn't mean you won't get really sick. It's unlikely. Um, but the other thing is, what about other people? I have to think about more than myself. I have a family, I have parents, I have people I work with. Some of those people, even if they get the vaccine due to their medical conditions, may not respond as well. They ha may have conditions, lung disease, heart disease, uh, that put them at increased risk for severe illness, even if they are vaccinated. Uh, and so I don't want to be the person who results in somebody else getting really sick and ending up in the hospital or even dying. And so another reason to get the vaccine is not just for me, but to protect other people in my community. Because if I get the vaccine, I am much less likely to get infected. Even if I do get infected, I'm much less likely to transmit the disease. And so when I'm looking out for other people, the best thing I can do to benefit others is get vaccinated. Thank you, Dr. Van. Anybody else have any comments on that? I think that was very well stated. Kate, uh, do you have another question for our panelists today? I think we were very efficient in the main questions that we had. I think the final question to put out there um, has been dispelled in multiple circles, but I think it's worth uh, circling back um, was the infertility concerns. And so again, Lots of younger women, childbearing age, working in healthcare, where these vaccines are becoming mandatory. Um, can we talk about um, the truth versus misinformation on infertility risks with the vaccines? Dr. Yeah. Kaka, do you want to start on that one or? Sure. Um, I'm happy to start on that one. So this was, when this came out in the news, it was something that really got traction really quickly, right? Because 
it is so critically important when you think about people's personal lives and you think about people who are family planning and all of the wonderful things and really difficult things that come with those decisions and those experiences, particularly um, really raising a lot of concern for women who've already had infertility treatments, miscarriages, which when you think about it, it's 20% of women, right? This is a huge concern. And there was essentially some theoretical data early on that came out that said, Hey, this might happen. And it really got propagated as a misinformation component, but spread rapidly. And it was really debunked when the actual data came out to the point that our national societies for maternal and fetal health and for OBGYN all said, women need to be vaccinated, whether you're planning to be pregnant, whether you're not planning to be pregnant, whether you are pregnant, whether you've delivered a baby, you need to do this for yourself. Because if there's any chance you want to get pregnant, the vaccine is way safer for you than being pregnant and getting COVID-19. That carries increasingly high risks for death to the mom, death to the baby, and not to mention the other adverse events that don't result in death to both uh, mom and baby. So I think like anything in this realm with social media, with digital media, with the misinformation that is really that accidental sharing of incorrect information and disinformation, which is the intentional sharing of inaccurate information, this spread like wildfire. And then you have to go back and try to prove to people why it's wrong. They willingly accept the risk that it's true, but to prove something that has been spread like that is wrong is extremely difficult. And so having those conversations became really important. And it's also really important when you think about our workforce, especially when you think about the nursing shortages and the fact that the majority of the nursing workforce is made up of women. And right now, increasingly younger women, given what has happened with people leaving the healthcare workforce. And so I think making sure that we can have those conversations, that's led to statements, it's led to publicity from those societies. It means having one-on-one conversations with physicians to understand. It's been innumerable phone calls to my cell phone from nurses and physicians and other people saying, what's true? What, What should I believe? Where do I look for this information to try to help people go through that? And I think that echoes forward in my mind too. And I just want to point this out, that we've also transitioned to many of these questions coming up with the pediatric vaccine becoming available and what the implications are for kids. And it's many of the same questions we've answered for adults, but they're rising again for kids, including the question of, well, does it cause infertility for my daughter who's six? No, I don't believe it's going to cause infertility for my daughter for the same reasons it wasn't going to cause infertility for the adult woman. But a lot of these questions are being recycled every time a new group of people are approved for the vaccine. And with that, I'll pause and let everybody else comment. I would like to just underscore something that you said, Dr. Kaka, and what I would underscore to any listener is, you know, where do you get the information? You know, you have a circle of friends who are lucky to be able to text and call you. Um, These are things when people have asked me, I said, that's something, you know, you have specific health risk. You got to talk about that with your doctor. You know, like you can't learn that from the TV. You have to have a conversation with somebody who understands your health history and can really answer intelligently to each of your personal concerns. 
And so I think that that will always be a good answer is to go back to your personal provider and have a sit down and really ask those hard questions because they know you. I think it's also important to underscore the importance that as humans, we have questions and that is okay that you have those questions. You just need to make sure that you're going to the right sources to get your answers. Yep. And when answering those questions, you have to have some empathy and compassion because the people probably are really scared uh, and don't know where to go and what to do exactly is right. So you, I mean, just because you might not uh, agree with the decisions they're making, you, you have to understand where they're coming from and try to work through it. So I think that's vital. Sarah, you, I think you have another question for us. Yeah. So I know I've been asked this question a lot in what I do as an infection preventionist. Um, I've heard a lot of people asking about boosters and there seems to be this myth going around that because we need boosters, that means that our vaccines aren't working. So can you guys speak to um, the effectiveness of the vaccine? And even though we need a booster, why it's still working and um, maybe just how common boosters are in other vaccines that we deal with. I'll let Dr. Rupp take that one if he's willing. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So, um, you know, clearly the vaccines are amazingly effective, but they're not perfect. Uh, There is not a medicine or a vaccine that has ever been developed that is perfect. And so uh, when these were first introduced, we knew that people were going to have some degree of waning immunity and that uh, boosters were likely to be required. Uh, We just didn't know, you know, when that's going to, uh, to be. And I I think we're still learning about that and trying to to figure out when exactly the best timing is of, you know, the primary series and and when do certain groups of folks need to to be boosted. What we've seen recently is that we do have some evidence of waning immunity from folks. And this is primarily uh, in older folks or people whose immune system may not be as robust as as in younger folks. Um, and so we, we have started to offer the boosters uh, in people, you know, who, who had uh, the vaccine greater than six months ago. And, uh, you know, if my information is correct, we can expect uh, some recommendations, uh, perhaps coming out later today, uh, to indicate that boosters are okay for everybody. Um, you know, you don't have to be over 65 or have pre-existing conditions, um, but I think that the, the boosters will be um, available to, to all folks uh, who want them. Um, you know, but that doesn't mean that the vaccine doesn't work or that the boosters don't work. It's just, um, you know, again, learning how to use them best to get us over this, uh, this pandemic. And quite frankly, some of the equation has changed with regard to the Delta variant that is so much more transmissible than some of the earlier uh, versions of the virus. And so, you know, essentially we have to have everybody vaccinated or everybody immune from natural disease in order to really uh, get to that place where there just uh, you know, isn't enough um, uh, susceptible people out there to keep this pandemic going. So um, you know, I, I would try to reassure people that uh, the vaccine works quite well, that even now in people who have received the vaccine months and months ago, they're still well protected against uh, hospitalization and death. Uh, we are seeing increasing numbers of breakthrough uh, cases uh, amongst folks. But again, for the most part, the people who are in our hospitals and in our ICUs and uh, dying from this disease are people who are unvaccinated. 
Yeah, can I can I add to that? I think the use of boosters for vaccines is not a new thing, right? We need a tetanus vaccine every 10 years. Our immunity that's induced by vaccines, it wanes. That's what happens. Um, we get a flu vaccine every year because the strain changes a little bit. The strain of COVID has changed a little bit. And so I wouldn't consider these ineffective. I agree 100% with Dr. Rupp. These are tremendously effective. Some of the most effective vaccines I've ever seen develop. Uh, the other thing I sometimes hear is people telling me, I'd rather have natural immunity. That's way better than a vaccine. Well, uh, it, and uh, in the past, I've generally agreed with the statement that natural immunity can be better. It's a little bit of roll of the dice with how the disease turns out. But this is one of the rare instances where a vaccine is actually more effective than natural immunity. The data most that I've most recently seen is a vaccine is five and a half times more effective at preventing infection than having a previous infection. That means that a vaccine is better than getting infected. And again, that's not terribly surprising. It's a respiratory viral infection. It doesn't mount that strong of an immune uh, response when you get COVID, um, unless you get really, really sick. Um, and so I think that's another thing, another myth that I hear. And so this is one place where vaccines are more effective than natural immunity. The disadvantage of natural immunity is you are rolling the dice with how things will turn out when you get an actual infection and you're putting others at risk. I think too, just to add to that, in the concept of natural immunity, with this particular infection, there seems to be this general idea that when you get an infection of any kind, natural immunity is there and it's good for life. That is a very rare thing in the world of infections, right? Like most infections, you don't get it once and can never get it again. Right? Like we think about chickenpox a lot that way, but the common cold, respiratory viruses, bacterial um, infections, like different types of pneumonia. I mean, these can happen over and over again, despite having been infected, despite an immune response, you are not immune to future infections from everything. So I think we have to remind people that this is not a standard and that natural immunity isn't something that just sticks with us with every infection we ever encounter for life. And Dr. Rupp has something to say, so I'll stop there. Oh, well, thanks, Kelly. Um, uh, I think we have a marketing problem. And so um, I would uh, uh, urge for everybody who's on the call, and I'm sure many of you are, are out there in the camp that you're trying to encourage vaccination, uh, we should stop using the term natural immunity because in our society, natural is always good. And so I would start saying disease-induced immunity. And um, disease is not good. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. Vaccine-induced immunity is natural immunity. It's your antibodies that your immune system created to the COVID virus. They're the same kind of antibodies that you would develop if you got an actual infection. And so disease-induced immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity. It's all natural. There's nothing fake about it. Very good points, all of you. Thank you all for chiming in on that last question. I don't know if anything uh, we have not covered that you would like to say in any closing discussion that we haven't discussed. Uh, I think Dr. Cockhead has something to say. Thank you, Kelly. I just want to make one point at the tail end because I know we're not going to talk a lot about this. And maybe Dr. V wants to add something because I know he has kids too that are at this age. But the pediatric vaccines are still incredibly 
effective. They're incredibly safe. And I, along with essentially every pediatrician and pediatric infectious disease doctor that I know jumped at the chance to get my children vaccinated once that data was released and this had approval. So I just want to touch on that at the end, because I know there's a lot of people who as an adult say, I'm willing to take a risk, but can I take that risk for my kids? And I want to tell you that I'm a mom who wants to do the best possible thing for my kids and keep my kids as safe as I can. And getting COVID-19 naturally as a disease, as opposed to having a vaccine, is more dangerous for my kids based on the data that I've seen, in my opinion. Uh, I would totally second that. I have five kids. Uh, four out of five were already vaccinated because they were old enough. And the fifth one is getting vaccinated. So i super supportive. And I totally agree with what you said. My tagline is um, get the vaccine for yourself. Uh, get the vaccine for your family and your loved ones and get the vaccine to help your community. Thank you, everyone. And uh, I guess that will wrap up. I don't know if Sarah or Kate have anything left to say at the end here. No, I think Dr. Rupp just dropped the mic. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Sarah, do you have any comments? Uh, I just want to say thank you for coming together for this discussion. It's been awesome. And you guys really are the dream team. So we're very fortunate to be able to have you on to pick your brains. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. You guys are, are awesome. Uh, and uh, we may have to have you all back on again. I think Dr. Van's in an upcoming episode and we still have yet to book Dr. Rupp on his uh, solo episode. He's kind of busy doing a couple of things usually. So it's uh, we'll get him on the schedule though. So everybody can listen to his story going forward, but thank you all. Happy to join the group. Thanks, Rick. Yep. Thank you. All right. All right. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode of Dirty Drinks. We will be back soon with another one. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, Reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.